are going to continue in our biblical relationship series today. We're talking about marriage. And so if you have a Bible, open with me to Ephesians 5. It might be a familiar text, but today I think we'll have a different view on what this might hold for us today. So we're going to pick up in verse 22. Read along with me. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy, and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as, as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Father God, we, we ask that you would do the work that only you can do today. Send your Holy Spirit and take a text that might be familiar to us and maybe even causes some pushback and some hard-heartedness. And God, would you soften our hearts? Would you ready us to receive what you would have for us this morning? Holy Spirit, I ask that you would speak through me to proclaim much of Jesus as our Lord and our King and our Savior. And it's in his good name we pray. Amen. You may have a seat. Well, good to see you guys today. Uh, it's been fun preparing for this. This is one that is uh, obviously applicable to my life since I am married, uh, but I also wanna try and make this be applicable to everybody in the room today. So we're gonna do some work to, to be able to tease that out and understand it. But certainly we need to do justice to the concept of marriage as it is one of the relationships that God has given us uh, and, and that we many of us live in a day-to-day -day experience. Um, just to prove to you that I am married, for one, my wife is in the room right now, and for two, I have pictures, so let's see some of those. Look at that. Yeah. 12 years, 25 pounds ago. It was good. Uh, we were married in January, which if you're uh, connecting the dots, you realize that we're not very good friends to the people in our wedding party because we made all the ladies stand outside in January. Uh, it was cold. It wasn't that cold, but it was cold. Uh, but the date was January 20th, which we affectionately call Jantoine. Uh, so it's a lot of fun for us. Um, and, and part of what I want to be able to share today are some of the lessons that we have learned together over the 12 years of our marriage. Uh, lessons I think will be helpful for all of us, no matter what stage of life you're in. If you're uh, single by choice, unintentionally single, uh, maybe you're uh, married, maybe you're happily married, maybe your marriage is hard. Maybe it's hard and good. Uh, maybe you're divorced or widowed. It's okay. I think there's things today for all of us to be able to apply. I have another picture. Uh, this is right after we came out of the, uh, the ceremony. So right as we're done and we're walking out, it's a big celebration. Um, Pete Marianne, you guys were there. Yeah, you were there. This is my in-laws. This is great. Look at me. I look scared, don't I? My goodness. I had... 
I, I thought I knew what I was getting into. I had no idea. But that's a part of what I want to be able to share today with you guys. This, this idea of marriage, it's, it's one that is, I think, both simultaneously beautiful and terrifying. See, the, our culture says that we can be known, we can be vulnerable, we can be authentic, and we can be fully loved, but we can never have all four at the same time. I don't think that's true because the biblical picture of marriage and the biblical picture of relationships would have something else to say. And so a marriage is a place where you bring in your own hopes and dreams. It can bring a lot of joy and encouragement and safety and fun. I pray that you would have fun in your marriage, that you would laugh a lot. But marriages can also have the ability to bring a lot of hurt and pain and confusion and fear. And I, I think what I'll propose to you today is that this is true of all intimate and deep relationships. If we just take a moment to just think about marriage, it's kind of crazy. Can we just call marriage crazy? Is that okay? Well, we're gonna bring two sinful people together with all of their, all of their baggage, all of their struggles, all of their wounds, their selfishness, their dreams, their hopes, their desires, their expectations, and we're gonna confine them into a small space where they have to live together every day for the rest of their lives. How could this not go wrong? Let me take a moment up front though to say a couple of things. The first is that if you're in this room and you're not married, you don't have to get married, okay? In fact, in heaven, you won't even be married to your spouse, okay? So some of you are thinking, well, this has internal implications. It does, but I think it's different than what you might expect. You are not called to marriage. Even if you are married, you are not called to marriage. And in fact, you are called to something far greater than that. And that is your call to draw closer to God. We'll discover what the purpose of marriage is and what the purpose of any of these relationships are. And I think if we also just take a sober moment to, to reflect on how the church approaches a lot of things, I think the church has done a terrible job on this idea of marriage. And let me just say flat out, marriage is not the pinnacle of the Christian life, okay? We are not called into marriage, we are called with a purpose into all of our relationships and the purpose of those relationships is that we would reflect and draw near and know who God is. Just say that up front. And yet, it is something, marriage that is. It is one of the ways that God has chosen to reveal to the world what he is like and who he is. What it means to be both fully known and fully loved. So I think it's important for us to define some of our terms here. Uh, when we look at marriage, we have to understand that this is actually something that is given to us by God. In the very opening chapters of the Bible, in the book of Genesis, we have the creation story, and in that, God created mankind, and he created the man and the woman, and he created them with dignity and likeness to himself, and he gave them an identity, and they were image bearers. They carried around within them the very image of who God is. And then in, in chapter two, God takes a step back to kind of recount some of the details of that story. And we have the, the wedding that happens where the woman is presented to the man and there is uh, this glorious exaltation where he says, she's about called woman, for she was taken from man and there is a wedding. It's the very first wedding that we have and it's recorded for us in scripture. 
And it's proclaimed that therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. They shall become one flesh and they will be naked and unashamed. Marriage from the very beginning was a very good thing. You see, it's a gift from God to us for him. Marriage is a gift from God to us for him, for his glory most particularly. You see, it is the creation of God that is marriage for the glory of God so that the world could get a glimpse of the gospel of God. I'll say this from the outset as well. Marriage is not about you. If you're married and you really have brought your spouse here so that they can hear what it's supposed to be like, maybe you're engaged, it's not about you and it's not about them. Marriage has never been about the individual. In fact, God even proclaims that it's not good for man to be alone. If we pick up in chapter 2 of Genesis, verse 18, we see this. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And if, pause for just a moment. Can we please get out of our minds that sitcom version of the guy who is completely incompetent, who's stumbling all over himself, who is just really completely helpless unless a strong, competent woman comes alongside to make up for all of his deficiencies? Because I think that's doing two things. I think it's demeaning the image of God as we've been given as image bearers, and it is also demeaning the role of men and women both equally full of dignity and value and worth because God said so, not because of a particular relationship that they enter into. So God then gives Adam a job. After he says it's not good for him to be alone, he explains why. He says, out of the ground the Lord had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens, and he brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called them, call each living creature, that was its name. So God had given man a job, and he gave him the authority to do that. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. And we lean into then this first union between a man and a woman. When God will open Adam's side and take his rib and fashion a woman and bring and present this woman to Adam and her name shall be called Eve, and she will be his wife, and they will have a unification, a unity that will be incredible. I had the opportunity to uh, teach our biblical marriage class, which is where I'm walking through with a handful of couples um, content of what it looks like for us to be able to understand what is marriage from a biblical perspective, and how do you ready yourself for this, and, um, and, and, and basically to take a look at how do we view it versus how the culture views it? And what are we to do with that? One of the, the pieces that we use in there is a, a book called Catching Foxes by John Henderson. And he does this great job in the very beginning before he even gets to the roles of what it looks like for a husband and wife in a marriage. He says, first of all, you have to understand who you are and how God has created you to be. And he, he jumps on this point where it says, Adam, it was not good for Adam to be alone. And he says this, Adam has no one of his nature and substance to think about. He has no one in his likeness to love, to serve, and honor. And left alone, his thoughts would be too wrapped around himself. And this is a problem. And you could just see if he is alone 
and all he has are all of the creatures that God has given him the ability to be able to name. And he looks around and there's like, there's no one like me here. You see, the seeds of narcissism were being set in place here. They're being sown. Because without another image bearer, all of Adam's thoughts, all of his efforts, they would all terminate it on himself. Henderson continues and says, in his alone state, Adam could not reflect the complete image that God wanted him to reflect. He was not as full an image bearer of God's glory as God deserved. See, marriage is a reflection of God, but I want you to hear this as well, that I'm not just talking about marriage here. I'm talking about any relationship because it wasn't good for Adam, not only to be alone, but hear this, he wasn't the only image bearer. And that was the problem, is if he's the only image bearer, he has no one to image God to. See, he was created with a purpose. You were created with a purpose. And the purpose is that we would image and reflect God's nature, his goodness, his character, and his glory to other people. Left alone, Adam couldn't fulfill his role as an image bearer. The fact that he was not good in his aloneness meant that he couldn't fully live out the role that God had called him to. I also want you to hear that in this, it's really easy to hear that as the woman comes along, she is half an image bearer. And as Adam was alone and it was in his poor state, he was only half an image bearer. That's not true. They were fully and complete bearers of the image of God. Because Adam, when he was created, he had a perfect relationship with God. And it was before sin had entered into the world. So God is saying that there's something here where we have to have full and complete identity as image bearers to be able to share that with other people. And that's the purpose that we've been created. But I want you to hear this. The purpose for which you are created is not marriage, okay? Yet the purpose of your marriage is to show the world what God is like. So even at our best, our sinless state, God says we need to be with other people. Now God has given us this gift of marriage and to be able to understand what this looks like, we have to understand the context of it. I mean, what is it? Is it an institution? Is it a, is it a contract? No, it's much more than that. It's, it's a covenant. And those are biblical terms for being able to say it's a promise or a vow. If you've ever been to a wedding, you know the bride and groom will stand here and they'll have this moment where they, they speak their vows to each other. What they're doing is they're, they're declaring their promises to one another. A promise that says, I will be with you for better or for worse, for richer, for poor, and sickness and in health. I'll, I'll be with you. Like, I'm going I'm to stick this out. I'm not, I'm not going anywhere. It's a promise, and it reflects some of the promises that God has given us. The promise like, I will be your God, and you will be my people. One that he is faithful to, to the end. Where he says, I will not leave you. I will not depart from you. See, this is the weight with which when we make those promises, as we stand up in a wedding ceremony and make those promises to our spouse, we're carrying that same weight of a covenant that God has given to us. I think it's actually interesting how our society has changed the way marriage looks. 
We've trivialized it. We've contractualized it. We've made it conditional. Well, if you're not happy, you don't need to stay married. Your marriage isn't for your happiness, just so you know. It's for your holiness. It is the way that God is preparing you. It also means that you don't finally get happy when you get married, okay? But we, we trivialize them in such a way where we, we've made marriage very contractual. I, I would suggest that it's far more difficult to get out of your cable provider contract than out of a marriage these days. Yet God will use the church, our community, your relationships, and including marriage, to show the world what he is like. I want to go back to our original text, looking at Ephesians 5. And I want to take a moment to take a look at some of the roles that we have outlined here. That we have uh, the role of a wife and the role of a husband. And I, and I suspect that you've probably heard this in a particular context. And, and before you immediately go to the place of uh, if, if you're a wife or if you desire to be a wife someday, that you have... You hear this word of submit. You have to submit to your own husbands or husband that you would have to lay your life down to your wives. And before you push back on that, because I feel that in my own life, right? And, I, and if I'm feeling that, I'm, I, I suspect you might as well. Before you push back on it, might I suggest that there's a bigger picture here? Might I suggest that as Paul says, there's a mystery and the mystery I'm referring to is Christ in the church. And now let us read what those roles look like with that in mind. That Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. That we are to love each other as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That would be us. That he might sanctify us, having cleansed us by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present us to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy, that we might be holy and without blemish. You see, when we understand that Paul is referring to and the way that God has given us this relationship of marriage, that we would understand that there's a preparation that's happening. See, marriage isn't the finish line, okay? It's the start. It's the part of the way that God is working in us. Your deep relationships are the way that God is preparing you. What is he preparing you for? He's preparing us for the end when we will be united with Christ. When the church will be brought together and she'll be presented and she'll be holy and blameless and without fault, without wrinkle, without blemish. We get a foretaste of what this will be. It's in Revelation 19. And is the marriage supper of the Lamb. And just listen to the words of the Apostle John. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready you see the roles which, which God has given us and the way he's fashioned them are part of our preparation the way that God is preparing the church to be presented to Jesus as 
his bride. But I also want to make sure that we don't just pick out a verse in some particular fashion and just run with it without understanding its context. And we just jumped right in the beginning of our service with wives submit to your husbands. Well, that's a little like grinding gears, maybe. Would you go one verse up with me? Maybe two. Well, we look at verse 20 of chapter five, that we would give thanks always for everything to God, the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Would we, would we give thanks always in everything? And in doing so, would we submit to one another out of a reverence for Christ? We are all called in marriage, out of marriage, husbands, wives. We are all called to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Well, how in the world do we do that? There are three ways I want us to look at how we submit to one another. And really what they are, are three ways in which we can reflect to one another in our relationships into this world who God is. And the first one is this picture of humility. If you flip with me to Philippians 2, there is a great picture of humility of how Jesus demonstrated what humility ought to look like. And in chapter 2, verse 3, we read, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Right there, I already have a problem. Because I, I am a sinful, proud, self-righteous, legalistic, convinced that I am right all of the time and my way will be better person. So you want me to count other people as more significant than myself. That's a challenge, okay? You're not even married to me. Wait till we get to this. But instead, when we look each other, let each other look not only to our own interests, but also to the interests of others. Well, to demonstrate to you how wonderful of a husband I am and the way that I do this continually, I have a quick story. This happened a couple of years ago, and uh, our family was going down to our in-laws down in Ballard, and we were walking along the sidewalk. And in Ballard, every sidewalk is mangled because of tree roots underneath. And of course, it was raining, right, because it's Seattle. And so Heather, my wife, is walking along, and she's got her rain boots on and hustling because it's raining. And she trips on one of these cracks in the sidewalk and just falls hard, flat, have you ever fallen in a way where you've had all of the air knocked out of you? Like you're just gasping for breath, you're like just trying to get anything. Well, every once in a while when that happens, there's, uh, there's sounds that come out of you that don't normally come out. She, she's given me her blessing to tell this story, okay? <laughs> that sound was like a moose call, <laughs> repeatedly. And I, being the perfect loving husband I am, walk up to her, I get down by her and I go, shh. <laughs> Guys, I did that. Now you know why she let me tell this story because it puts me in a great light. There were people coming. You can't stop making that sound. Stop it. They're going to hear you. Oh, man. It's maybe a dumb, but it's a simple illustration of I was so much more concerned of how I looked in that moment than the very fact that she couldn't breathe. Um, as evidence that she's here, you know she, she's okay now, okay? Just so we're all good. Man, 
it's a hard thing to be able to do that, to put the interests of others, especially in these deep and intimate relationships where you, you have these hopes and these desires and the expectations, and what if they don't align? Might we model what Christ has looked like to look to the interests of others? So we are encouraged to have this mind among ourselves because it is ours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God, he didn't count equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing. He was made in the form of a servant and he was born in the likeness of men and being found in humble form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. There are three words that just leap off the page to me there, that he made himself nothing. That pushes against almost everything in me. I want to be something, not nothing. That he became a servant. Not so that other people would make much of him in the way where they would recognize what he did. Not in the way that we would take that and distort it with sin and our own manipulations and our own desires. Not in the way that we would just do it so that other people would recognize like, oh yeah, he's, that guy serves a lot. Not in our self-righteous accumulations but he literally laid his life down and he humbled himself out of obedience to the point of death for you. So the very simple takeaway and the idea of humility is that we would not make ourselves the center on all of this. When I was talking to Heather about this, she came up with this great term. And it was something that was birthed out of something that she learned just a couple of weeks into our marriage. Now, mind you, this is a really profound thing and I'm just a little saddened that it came so quick because it meant that something was wrong very quick. But she said, God had told me to extend grace every day. Every day? Yeah, every day. But what if they don't deserve it? Neither do you. That's why it's called grace. They were to extend grace to each other every day because she was quickly recognizing that she was living with somebody that had many quirks, a lot of idiosyncrasies, that had very strong opinions what could and could not be left out on the dining room table during the day. I'm not kidding, it's a real thing. So this term, just two weeks into our marriage that she would later describe is that God had called her to pour out buckets of grace in our marriage. Buckets of grace. I'm like, I don't need buckets. I mean, how about like a, a spritz or like just a little bit, a, a little bit of grace. No, 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 buckets. Adam, you need buckets of grace. Humility will start to take shape in your relationships when you're willing to pour buckets of grace into them. Did you know the Bible says that it is to your glory to overlook an offense? When you're willing to pour out those buckets of grace, what you're doing is you're, you're willing to not be offended. And that language, to your glory, it actually goes back to that very central idea of being created in the image and likeness of God when you are willing to forgive and you're willing to let go and, and overlook an offense. You know what you're doing? You're showing the world what God is like. Because God is willing to overlook an offense. 
Well, this can produce in us a sense of forgiveness, which is our second point of something that helps us reflect who God is. Paul even addresses this in the book of Ephesians, and it happens before he even gets to what these roles look like. It's actually in chapter 4, and he sets up this idea. He says, first of all, you need to understand that as a believer in Christ, you are a new creation. That you're created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. He says, because of that then, because of how God has recreated you, can you let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away with you, put away from you along with malice? Are these things that you're willing to let go and overlook? Because there's a couple words that jump off the page here to me. One is bitterness. You might be bitter because of somebody in a relationship has done to you. And might I suggest that bitterness is one of those very hard things to work through And in every way you want there to be vengeance and justice and you want there to be something to validate how you feel. And when you internalize that and it creates bitterness, it's only harmful to you. You see, bitterness is damaging to your soul. Paul continues and he says, be kind to one another, be tenderhearted. It's interesting to me that Paul would put this, that God would have this in the Bible, because it seems like a really low bar, doesn't it? Be kind. We tell this to kids all the time, be kind. It's, it's in here because we aren't. Then in our relationships, we stumble as we try and get over that very low bar of simply being kind to one another. Maybe God is calling you to kindness. Then he continues and says, forgive one another as God and Christ forgave you. See, God doesn't call us to something as a command without first showing us how he supplies what's necessary to accomplish that. And if there's something I can remind you of here now is that you as a believer, as a follower of Christ, as a Christian, as somebody who says, yes, Jesus, I submit to you You are my Lord and my King and my Savior. Might I tell you that you are forgiven. You have been forgiven of so much. I love that this picture in 1 John, when he says that if we confess our sins, if we're willing to go to God and say in every way that we've rebelled, in every way that we've pushed back against you, in every way that we've been selfish and self-aggrandizing, in the ways that we have put our interests above others, in the ways that we've been proud, in the ways that we're willing to harm our spouse or our friends or our fiancés, in every one of those ways, if we confess our sins, guess what? God is faithful and just to forgive you because the price has been paid for those sins. God loves you so much that he sent his son to pay the price for your sins. And in that, you can stand forgiven. But it doesn't stop there. 
You see, it's so much more than simple forgiveness because the gospel is bigger than just being forgiven. The gospel is that you've been cleansed. And 1 John 9 says, 1 9 says that you not only are forgiven of your sins, but you're cleansed from all unrighteousness. When that stands true in your soul, we can begin to recognize what it looks like to forgive another person because we've been forgiven of much. We've been cleansed of much. Well, how many times do we need to forgive? Well, I love this because this is a question that Peter approaches Jesus on and says, Lord, how many times? And I love his answer because it's really just simply a lot. And it teases out a little bit more by saying, well, is it, is it seven times? Well, no, I tell you it's seven times 70 times. Well, whenever I see a math equation, I run to an Excel spreadsheet. And so I started to do some work, guys. Seven times 70 is 490 times. You probably knew that. I've been married for 4,441 days as of today. If I do the math, that means that I should forgive my wife every nine days. That's doable. I can do that. And in fact, if I run some projections, the longer I'm married, the less often I have to forgive. Well, then if I flip that on the other side and say, well, am I really called to be forgiven every nine days? Because surely it's a lot more often than that. That Not even to mention that Jesus wasn't talking about additional new things that you'd have to forgive of. He was saying, let this every time, let go of it, forgive it. He's talking about the same thing, 400 90 times. You see, when we piece this together and we understand that we've been forgiven of much and that we can be cleansed of all unrighteousness, that we can be in relationship with one another, it means that we can know what it's like to be fully known and fully loved. In that picture in Genesis 2 where it says the man and the wife stood there and they were naked and they were unashamed. I'm not talking about a nakedness that would refer to a sexuality. I'm talking about being known so deeply and intimately that there was nothing hidden. And yet there was no shame. When you exercise forgiveness and truly believe that you've been cleansed from all unrighteousness and encourage each other to that, as a man and a wife, you can come back to this place of being naked and unashamed. And when you do that, you show the world what God is like. Well, love certainly has to be one of the things that we talk about in our relationships. Our society has taken that word and really distorted it. We do a good job of messing up things that God sets in front of us. The world will tell us that love is an emotion, it's a feeling, but it's not. The way that scripture would define love is that it's an action. In Ephesians 5, the very first verse of that chapter, there's a verse here that 
Paul puts in front of us. And again, this is for all of us. And it's actually the verse that I use when I give a charge to a couple that I get to a wedding for. And I've had the privilege of doing over 30 weddings. And it's always the same thing. It's always Ephesians 5.1. And it is right after the verse of forgive one another, be kind, be tenderhearted, and do that because you understand that Christ has forgiven you. And he says this, therefore, would you be an imitator of God? Know that you are beloved children. And in that walk in love as Christ has loved you and gave you himself up for you. I'm pretty convinced that the couples don't remember a thing I say at those weddings, but that's okay. Because the reason why I go back to the same one each and every wedding ceremony is because I need to hear it. I need to understand that I've been chosen as a beloved child of God, that I've been forgiven of much, that I've been cleansed of all unrighteousness. I've been given an identity and a value and a worth, and I'm called to show the world what God is like as an imitator of God. And that we are to show the world what love is like because Christ himself loved us in such a way where he gave himself up for us. You see, biblical love is not a love that's marked by self-preservation. Biblical love is marked by self-sacrifice. We see this in the way that Jesus is teaching his disciples. In John 15, he says, this is my commandment to you, that you would love one another in the way I've loved you. Because you can't find a love that's greater than this, that someone would lay down his life for his friends. See, that's the action of love. First John 3.16, many of you are familiar with John 3.16, but First John 3.16 is pretty good too. It says this, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And because of that, when we recognize that and we see it, we're going to lay down our lives for each other as well. We will know what love looks like because it will be self-sacrificial. You see, Christ is preparing his bride. And the love that he has given us, he's given to the church. And he gave himself for us so that we would know what love looks like. John tells us that having loved his own, he loved them to the end, that being Jesus. Jesus declares that there is no greater love than this, that he would lay down his life for his friends. And he also says, as the Father has loved me, so I love you. Would you be an imitator of God? You see, the love of Christ for us is a self-sacrificing love. The love of Christ for us is a complete love. Nothing's held back. That you might be fully known and fully loved. And the love of Christ for us is an unending love. Just as we're being prepared for that day when we will be united with Christ forever, his love never ends. The world will know what God is like in the, by the way in which we love each other. And we do that like Christ. If we were to look back at that picture of Heather and I walking out of the church, the one where I looked scared, remember that one? If I were to look back and if I had a chance to tell the two of us on the day of our wedding what I would want to tell them, 
I would want to tell them this. Would you give grace to each other? Buckets of grace. Would you overlook offenses? It will be to your glory. And yet, would you be humble, tender-hearted, considering the other person is more significant than your own self, maybe putting their interests above your own interests? Would you forgive often, knowing that you have been forgiven? And would you recognize that what you are stepping into is not about you, it's about Jesus? That we would pursue Christ. You see, our marriages, our relationships have an impact that expands and extends beyond just the two of you, okay? It reaches outside of that relationship because people are watching. They're watching to see how you do relationships. They're watching to see how you do marriage. When we were preparing for our wedding day, I was conflicted. And the struggle I was working through was whether or not I would have my brother as my best man. You see, I'd become a Christian a couple of years prior, and my brother wasn't a believer. And I didn't know if I could have him stand there right next to me in front of all these people before I made this promise to my wife, to God. I didn't know if he would understand the same values that I would hold in that and what importance that would be. And I, I didn't know if, if, if I'm asking him to help me in that, if he would be the right help. You see, I lived with him after college, before I knew Jesus. And then I lived with him as we were engaged. This is a couple of years after I'd met Jesus. And he could see a change. I decided that it would be best to have my brother be my best man. Because I love him and he's my brother. And I wanted to show him what that looked like. What that love looked like. And, and so that was in January, Jantuan. And a couple months later, on Easter, we're at church together. And there's a call to response. And he leans over to me and he says, I think I want to become a Christian. And I was like, why? <laughs> Probably not my most prepared moment. Should have had something better chambered there, ready to go. And he said this, he goes, I've seen the change in you. When you lived with me pre-four, before you knew Jesus, and now you leading up to your marriage, saw you were different. And I saw the way that you and Heather valued Jesus in your life, and you wanted your relationship to show that, and the way that you cared for each other, and the way that you loved each other, and the way that you sacrificed for each other, and just the way you enjoyed each other. Those are things I want. And I recognize that what I really want in this I want Jesus in my life. You see, your marriage has an impact beyond just the two of you. Your marriage can be used by God to show the world what God is like. Let's pray. Father God, I am grateful for the way in which you have loved me, us, I am grateful that you are preparing us as the church to be Jesus' bride. And that there will be a day when we will be presented to him as holy and blameless and without spot or wrinkle or blemish. 
I thank you that we are forgiven of much. Oh God, would you help us? Would you help us in our relationships to be humble? Would you help us to see that we've been forgiven and that allows us to then forgive each other? Might our relationships be marked by buckets of grace? Lord, I pray for each of us in this room, wherever we might be, and I pray that you would provide a comfort to us. And I pray that you would provide the ability to imitate who you are to those around us. God, that we'd be able to stand firm with great confidence and comfort knowing that we are your image bearers. And would you help us to show the world what you are like. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.